Hello, I'm Greg. Roses are red. Violets are purple. Poems don't have to rhyme. So we don't have to pretend that our violets are really blue. Let's have an inappropriate conversation, and I'm not exactly sure what to call it. I might end up calling it Must Poems Rhyme All the Time, or something a little, you know, cheeky like that. My original thought was to simply talk about formalism in poetry, both from a positive and from a negative perspective, but that of course sounded much too dry. This will be an inappropriate conversation. My hope is that it isn't going to be dry at all. Despite being about, you know, uh, something uh, as potentially scholastic as poetry, the uh, episode should have an explicit language sticker on it. When I get to the different drummer, I'll be uh, allowing that drummer to speak for himself, and he will speak freely. But what I want to start with is a friend's blog. Once again, having friends online, imaginary, or those that I've met in person, or in this case, a little bit of both, um, I get a chance to uh, to get inspired by their work uh, on a pretty regular basis. And in this case, a recent post that was put up was talking about uh, college education. She's an English major. I'm an English minor. And although my English studies were all over the map, um, some grammar, grammar in the pursuit of supporting a journalism degree, a lot of film studies, uh, Filmathon was one of them, which was literally a film festival that I was reporting on and writing essays through, but also uh, film as literature and things of that nature. Uh, instead of taking literary criticism, uh, I, lean, I lean more toward film criticism, but I also had American literature. Given the choice between American and uh, British, I went American. But as my friend had noted on her blog, I had the exact same experience. The American literature that I studied was either, you know, a couple hundred years old. Not that I minded all that much. I'm a big fan of Poe. I don't mind Hawthorne. That's a good era for me. Or modern. And by modern, I mean truly modern. Things just written. And what was really lost in the between there, the entire beat movement, poetry and prose. So some of the giants of that particular era, people who really, I think, changed the way American literature is done. Uh, William S. Burroughs, um, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, those people not really covered for me at the collegiate level. She mentioned going back and looking at a syllabus and not finding really any any reference at all, not even a fork in the road where you had optional studies you could do. And do you pick this particular author to delve into or a book by a different author? It wasn't even optional. Now, I wouldn't have expected this in high school. I think my high school probably took a chance by spending more time on T.S. Eliot than you'd expect. Poetry tends to be controversial for some reason. It assumes things that a lot of people, including parents, you know, don't necessarily take to. And anytime you make a, an assumed interest that isn't shared by others, you're going to arouse a certain amount of backlash or prejudice. But at the college level, you would certainly expect this kind of poetry, um, especially the most influential works by people like Kerouac, to, to resonate. Now, I'm going to come later to the, uh, back to the ideas of Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs, those two in particular, because I don't think you can talk about politics, sex, religion, and how those things combine, and poetry, without dealing with them at some point in time. I'm just not going to get there today. And I haven't yet decided whether naming any of those particular poets as a different drummer is a direction that I want to go in. But I will name a poet and a rocker as a different drummer at the end of the show today. One of my premises is that it's not necessary for poetry to rhyme. And it doesn't seem to me, at least when I think back to when I was in college, it wouldn't have been a controversial idea at all. In fact, to suggest that to be truly a poem, you must have a rhyme scheme would have been completely foreign to my experience in the Department of English at the university level. But you hear that a lot from, you know, people that you just encounter in everyday life. 
that they expect poetry to rhyme. And one encounter that I had in the record store that amused me no end was somebody who frequented the classical music section. So, and a fan of choral music. So somebody who understood and appreciated a lyric, so to speak, but was also one of those type of people who was brazenly opposed to anything that's been you know, made in the realm of music in the last 150 years. So um, not a fan of anything in the realm of pop or rock, um, and certainly not a fan of anything uh, hip-hop or R&B. And I just I found that very amusing, that here was an individual who, in the course of, of having conversations with him, would have preferred an older, more ancient form of lyric that had a specific, a specific meter, that had a particular rhyming pattern, was, in other words, playing within a specific form, an act of formalism, and at the same time rejecting hip-hop and rap altogether. I, I found it to be hypocritical, or hip-hopocritical, because rap music has more slavish devotion to rhyme as a form than anything you're going to find in modern poetry. So I'm willing to grant right up front that lyrics can be and often are poetic, and that hip-hop lyrics in particular, if what you're looking for is good meter and a rhyme scheme, you might do worse than modern rap lyrics. Of course, the trick there is trying to find a rapper with the kind of content that is as inspiring as the meter or the repetition, right? But for me, I've always found um, formalism to be a problem. It's not something that I enjoy. I realize, and I'll grant right up front, that there's a great deal of creativity that can come when you essentially adhere to a form. Adhering to a form creates innovation. And we've heard this concept discussed in the past uh, in many parts of the public square on the question of profanity and uh, explicit language, that if you, you know, adhere to the form of not ever using any explicit terminology, and yet you want to convey a particularly explicit sexual idea, that rule of not using certain words forces you to be very innovative, Right. Um, I, you think back to the Hollywood production code era and how, how would a director convey that a uh, just married couple had consummated their marriage if you, can't, you know, if you can't show them in the same bed together ever? How do you get that across? And you know, one of the more humorous examples is Alfred Hitchcock in the closing scene of North by Northwest where this couple that has been through this grand daring adventure together, having met on a train and really at for her, for the bride, the start of that adventure, when the movie ends, they're back on a train again, uh, heading off to a honeymoon and intentionally traveling by train for nostalgic reasons. And how does Hitchcock end his film? What's the last image in the movie North by Northwest? He pans away from the sleeper car they're in when he invites his new bride up into the bed together pans away from the train to avoid getting in trouble with the Catholic Legion of Decency or with the Motion Picture Production Code, and instead you get a fairly long scene of a train going into a tunnel. It's that kind of innovation that comes from formalism. So censorship, being one of many forms of formalism and one of the more negative forms of formalism, nevertheless leads to a good deal of perhaps uh, necessary creativity. So I don't want to deny the power of of having a form, um, writing something in within the rules of haiku or sticking to uh, an iambic pentameter, those sort of things can force an author to make choices and create the, uh, the unexpected accidents of art when you're trying to live inside a form. But to me, some of the most powerful ideas I've ever heard have not been bound by that kind of formalism. They've been essentially freed from it and when you're no longer living inside formalism, you get more of an unfettered approach to ideas themselves. And you see this in a couple of ways. I mentioned well back early on in Inappropriate Conversations number 20 called Chapter and Verse that the look of a poem is pretty important. There's a posting out there from July of 2010 uh, under the category of articles. It's not really a podcast. There's not really a different drummer on it. But under the heading of articles, I just put a little image of what that chapter and verse poem looks like, because sometimes the look of the poem is important. Sometimes that supplants the form or plays along with the form in meaningful ways. I mean, I think if you're writing in a particular meter, 
or if you're writing with a particular a rigid rhyme scheme, you don't necessarily end up with as geographical a landscape on what the poem itself looks like. But if you're writing in a non-formal way, then sometimes what the poem looks like matters a lot. And that's, that's one example. The poet E.E. E. Cummings is, is another perhaps really obvious example of the look of a poem, um, saying something and being significant. I remember one time submitting a poem to be published. I don't believe it actually got published in my memory where I had taken, uh, it was actually a stanza of a much longer work where I wanted the stanza itself to be a criticism of the state of journalism in America at the time. And I had intentionally done it with justified type and I had intentionally put it into a, uh, a size now a perfectly appropriate size to print. It wasn't, you know, uh, something you'd have to put in landscape. It wasn't a weird shape. It was easily publishable, but I justified the type and created the uh, breaks in the lines with the words in such a way that the space between words would be obvious, that there was no mistaking from the look of the poem, that you were seeing something that was um, not in a left justified or right justified, but in a, you know, in a fully like newspaper column justified typeface. Well, that was on purpose. It was a statement that I was making. And at one point during the process of, of seeing whether this was going to be published and what it would look like if it was published, they had undone all that. And they had simply left justified the typing. And it was as if the, the shape and the look of the poem didn't matter to what they were ultimately going to print. Or perhaps it was impossible for them to do the pagination in that way for their own particular publication. And I think that's one of the things that led me to feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay nixing this project. Uh, and maybe it was a mutual thing. But I wanted to criticize newspapers and do it in a way that looked like it was a very old-time, um, manually set-type newspaper view. And it just didn't work. But the first time that I can remember um, encountering a poem that wasn't a lyric, it wasn't a rhyming scheme, but it also wasn't something visual on the page. Uh, and it may not have been the first time I'd been to somebody reading poetry before. I mean, I'd been to elementary and junior high school talent shows. I'd been to uh, church bazaars and things of that nature where somebody reading and reciting verse in public from a stage with or without a microphone might not have been unusual. Yeah, it might not have been that strange. When you think about it, anytime you're in a church service and somebody is reading from an entire psalm start to finish, uh, the most famous probably being the 23rd psalm, you basically have somebody up there reading a lyric to you or reading a poem to you. So I'd been to people reading verse aloud before, but I had never heard anything quite like this. And I think it was my freshman year of college. Might have been early sophomore year, but right at the beginning of college, one of the English professors at the university I attended, reading his own poem, really in a game-changing way. Uh, now I'm going to share this poem with you in just a moment so that you can perhaps experience a snippet or a hint of what I experienced. It won't be read by the author himself, so I think there's something to admit, there's be something missing there from what I, from what I encountered. Plus, I was there in the room seeing a live performance, and it wasn't a big group of people. It wasn't like a, a crowd of a couple of hundred. There was more like a couple of dozen of us there, and everyone wanting to be there. This wasn't like the warm-up for something else. This wasn't academic required, you know. It wasn't uh, coursework in any way. And I think that made a difference, right? But the other thing about it that jumped out at me was that without any cues from the page in front of me, without having anything to read myself, and without any of the hints of a rhyme scheme or anything of that nature, I was really caught up in his words. Now, I consider myself to be a surrealist or perhaps a neo-surrealist. And I think when, when I uh, share this poem in a moment, you'll see why this connected with me in a, in a really powerful way. So if the form is less about the words themselves and how they sound and how they fit together and how they flow, there was perhaps a certain form in terms of saying this is going to have a uh, overlapping surreal quality where there's a now and there's a then and there's a then inside the then. But I found that to be particularly exciting. Now, how strongly do I feel about the poem Inner Ear written by T.R. Hummer? Here's how strongly I feel. When I first got online, you know, many years ago, too many to remember, more than a decade, 
I, I was initially reluctant. I mean, I always tell myself these things. I make my make these vows that are inevitably going to be broken. Like, well, I'm never going to chat in a chat room. Well, eh, to some degree, that's still true. I don't go to chat rooms to chat, but I've been in places where a uh, live broadcast of some sort's going on, and I will I will converse there, in, basically in a chat room, right? So there's a a vow that I said, well, I'm not interested in that. That's something I won't do, and then I've done it. I uh, never record a podcast. It's probably on that list as well, ironically. But one of the things I did very early on was to say, I'm getting on here to go online, to research companies, to do a, a job hunt, perhaps to contact companies or network with other people via email and you know seek a job or at least evaluate whether to make a job change. And I ultimately did make that job change that way. But I told myself, I can't see myself making any online purchases. It's too risky. For one thing, it's inherently shopping by credit card, and shopping by credit card has inherent risks to it, right? But I also just couldn't imagine myself um, being a an Amazon.com customer. I was just trying to put myself in those shoes and see if they fit, and they really weren't necessarily fitting me all that well. Or at least in my mind, they weren't fitting me all that well. We'll get to this on another occasion, but I'm a big fan of the used bookstore, the used record store. I like the idea of holding what it is I'm about to buy. And that's the one thing that uh, even a very good online retailer can't truly deliver. Now, I've since, of course, changed my ways completely. Um, I make a fairly large amount of online purchases, and not just at holiday times of year. But when I first got on Amazon.com, I sort of took it as a challenge. I said to myself, I'm still thinking I'm never going to make a purchase here. But if I were to make a purchase, what would it be? And very high on that list was, I would like to own a written copy of this poem that I've only heard once in my life. Now, this was once in my life in the middle of the 1980s, give or take, maybe early 80s, that had stuck with me 16 or 17 years later, such that I still remember the name of the poem, still remember the author's name, and knew that I would recognize the verse when I read them, really read them for the first time, having only encountered them previously by hearing them. And again, very powerful thing, hearing an author read his own work in this manner. Uh, so I went on to Amazon.com, put in the name of the author, put in the name of the poem, didn't find a hit with that combination, but I did find a hit with the author's name. And T.R. Hummer was there with a book of poetry, more than one, in fact, um, and one of the books of poetry called Lower Class Heresy, published in 1987, I believe by the University of Illinois Press, has this poem in it. So today, if you go on Amazon.com looking for this particular book, you're not going to find a new copy in the traditional sense of the word. I don't believe it's in print right now and available on Amazon. But at the time, it was available on Amazon.com as a new book. So just like any other book that you might pick up off the shelf. And I knew there's no way any local bookstore that I shop is going to stock this poetry book on their shelf. I would have to special order to get it, right? Which, for whatever reason, in a record store, I'm willing to do more readily than I am in a bookstore. And I'm not sure I understand why that is. I've worked in both record stores and bookstores. I understand how the process works. It's not terribly different. So I don't really have a good explanation for why my attitude is different toward those things. But here with Amazon.com, I was staring at it, right? Face-to-face, -face, here's a book, 10 15 bucks plus shipping and handling, whatever the rules were in the late 90s. I could have this. This could be mine. And this particular book of poetry was the first book, the first purchase of any sort that I personally made on Amazon.com. I can't speak for whether my wife might have gone online and taken the plunge sooner than I did. But for me, this was a defining moment. Not just to say... I am willing to make online purchases when I had sort of vowed that I wouldn't, but also to say I finally have my hands on this particular poem, and to me that's a game changer. Now, I'm going to read this poem in its entirety. I'm not sure whether that's uh, an adequate application of fair use or not, but I'm certainly doing it from my perspective with a mind and a bent toward advertising. This is good stuff. This is a poem that should be sought out. If you can find it online or if you can find a used copy of the book, I recommend it. Hummer is, in every sense, a modern poet. Not a beat poet, but a modern poet. Um, so consider it advertising. 
But the other thing about it is that I've got some experience here recently in particular reading other people's poetry. If you don't understand kind of the different dynamic that happens there, there may be no real way of explaining it. But there's something about the relationship you need to form with something you're going to read aloud that takes a bit of time. If I'm going to do a reading at church uh, from Scripture, even if it's a passage that I'm very familiar with, I also like to go through that same process of saying, you know, let me read it just on the page, and then let me walk away from it for a while. Let me come back to it and maybe mumble it to myself, kind of get a sense of what it's supposed to sound like aloud, um, that I understand the concept from reading it like you would read anything, but now I want to hear it. And then again, leaving it, maybe even for a day, come back later, read it aloud aloud and see if my mouth and these words are going to get along. If I have to forge a relationship, you know, in a more aggressive manner, or if it's going to be easy for me, Tony Pucci, who have I mentioned earlier as a different drummer, has uh, his own podcast series, a group of podcasts uh, called Pucci Playground Productions. You can find them at www.tonypucci.com. And one of the more recent readings of his poems, because he has a series of like an online radio station, uh, an independent music station uh, that he plays. And also um, occasionally there'll be a fatal interview or an album review and poetry, his own poetry. And he seeks lots of different voices to read that poetry, which I think is a great thing. It wouldn't be a terrible thing if those voices included himself from time to time, maybe even a little more often, in fact, because there's something about the author reading his own work that's pretty special. But he sent me some poems for me to look at and, and read, and I was happy to do it. And I wonder if it, I wonder if it took Tony aback that it, I seemed to spend some time. Some weeks went past between receiving his email and actually sending him back files of the recording, but it's all about kind of developing that relationship with the work because it's someone else's words. And like with a Bible reading or like with um, Mr. Hummer's poem, it takes a bit of time to find your way through. Now with, with Terry Hummer, I've heard him speak these words before once and once only, but once was enough. So I think finding the voice on this, in this example is pretty easy. But if you get a chance to visit www.tonypucci.com, you know, sample some of the poems that are up there. They're short. And again, he's found a variety of different voices. And there's a certain amount of fun quality within the realm of poetry reading of hearing different people read the voices of yet another person. So with that as an introduction, I want to read to you what might be my favorite poem ever written. If that's an overstatement, it's the favorite poem I've ever heard the poet himself read. Inner Ear by T.R. Hummer. Think of it this way, the doctor tells him. A small sealed chamber with a fine dust inside. He thinks of a country church. That tiny, unused room where they keep old choir robes nobody ever wears. He went there once with a girl who made a mistake in Sunday school. Consider, she read aloud, the lilies of the field. They do not sow neither do they rape. The red she turned when everybody laughed was a miracle. The dust is always settling, always falling. Your body knows. That's how it tells up from down. Lying flat on his back on a hospital bed, he thinks it incredibly strange that the spinning he feels in the world is not in the world, but the dust inside his head. It is true that the world is turning, and its motionlessness is only apparent. It is not true that he feels it turning, but maybe a doubling of illusions amounts to something like the truth. That small room at the back of the church has a window in it. When she grabs his hand and pulls him in, they stand together in its hot shaft of light. Have you ever kissed a girl? She whispers. He doesn't answer. He just kisses her. Sometimes it can be like that. It hits him while he is driving. One minute, everything is fine. The next, everything turns upside down. The nausea is indescribable. He goes so gray, his wife is certain it is his heart. He sits there while she flags a passing car. His eyes shut, his forehead jammed on top of the steering wheel, which gives him no clues being round. In the hospital bed, 
He lies carefully, not moving his head. Everything that falls, he thinks, falls toward the center of some larger body. Dust falls toward the center of the earth. The girl is older than he is, almost 16. She has to bend to kiss him. He keeps his eyes open, sees how tight hers clench. Her tongue darts in his mouth. She holds him hard. Dust motes rise around them in the sunlight, shimmering in a translucent eddy as if their bodies were an obstacle in some current. Sometimes, the doctor says, there'll be a disturbance. We don't know why it happens, but when it does, the dust can't settle. And then your sense of direction goes haywire. You don't know which way is up. His wife sits by the bed, reading an article aloud. I am Joe's inner ear. The inner ear as a whole is referred to as the labyrinth. There are, in fact, two labyrinths, one inside the other. It's a hell of a clumsy way to do things, he says. It is a crude piece of engineering. I thought it was your heart, she says. I knew it was. He stares at the ceiling, not turning to look at her. There's no connection, he says, between the heart and the inner ear. But he lies there holding to the bedrail's steel, believing he can feel the pole tilt toward the solstice. Bony labyrinth, he hears his wife murmur. Membranous labyrinth. An out-of-tune pedal organ in a distant room wheezes out, Rock of ages cleft for me. Listen, the girl whispers, listen. But he stands straight and kisses her again and again. There is only the rush of blood in his ears and the voice that tells him, Really? We don't know much. It could happen any time. It may never happen again. Hello, Dave Prouse here. And when I'm not performing my one-man show, The True Voice of the Dark Side, I listen to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Syndicated Network. Right, back to rehearsals. Commander, tear this ship apart until you find those plans and bring me all passengers. I want them alive! That was a promo that I played many times for Here Goes Nothing. But this is the first time I've ever gotten to the point of having a promo that I know will not be of current valid use anymore. There's sort of a mixture of, of sadness and strange satisfaction in saying this, but the Here Goes Nothing podcast on Simply Syndicated has run its course. Probably by the time you're listening to this, they will either have just released their last show or be on the verge of releasing their 100th and last podcast. I feel like I've you know, been pretty faithful to Here Goes Nothing in terms of uh, contributing and supporting them and, uh, and, of course, including their promos here, but... I wanted to give anyone who's never gone over and listened to that particular show on simplysyndicated.com a sense of what they're like. So in addition to playing one more promo here in just a second, I'm going to play a clip of one of their skits. Well, my mom's got a DS. She's got her Scrabble on it, her brain training yeah, there. She's well into her 60s. Um, the, the, the thing that's even funnier is um, Liz's parents are that bit older because she was a very late child in the family. And they're in yeah. the 70s. And uh, a few Christmases ago, I took the Wii. I may have mentioned it on the Christmas show from last year, actually. But um, I took the. I called it the Wii that saved Christmas because I find it quite dull at Christmas <laughs> down there <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. And uh, it, it just got everybody sort of together playing bowling and whatever. And then we went back last Christmas, and he'd gone out and bought his own system. <laughs> it happens, yeah. <laughs> and he's there playing me- Tiger Woods golf and bowling and all this kind of stuff. It makes me think that the only, the, really, the only untapped market now for the big game companies and the manufacturers would be the sort of geriatric, the old senior citizen uh, market. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's the only one left that they haven't really sort of uh, looked at. Although, you know, now, now I think about it, Boz, hmm. I, I, I wonder what that would sound like. Yes. New from the makers of the international smash hit rock band comes... Big Band. Available in single instrument edition, or why not go for the full 25-piece care home edition, featuring flimsy plastic euphonium, tuba, baritone horn, and many others. 
Choose your favorite swinging cat from a huge selection of fully licensed and digitized band leaders, such as Dizzy Gillespie, Count Basie, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, and many more from this list on Wikipedia. Our production team has worked day and night to make Big Band the most realistic 1920s-era music performance title in video game history. Marvel as Glenn Miller vanishes mysteriously from the game halfway through, or indeed drool at the lush visual rendering of that club from Ray, with Willow in it doing a shit American accent. Try the world tour mode, and take your band on the road, unlocking new venues, the Crown Green Bowls Clubhouse, a town centre Christmas light ceremony, Bournemouth, and new accessories, new tie knots, nylon rich blazers, whores and a bag of heroin, US tour only. There really is nothing like the adrenaline rush of the big band experience, and we are sure you'll agree, from the first pop of a trombone to the polite applause after a grand finish. But please don't take our word for it. The gaming world is alive with talk of big band, and here is the opinion of IGN's latest reviews contributor, respected games blogger Ada Brady of Leon C. You see, my Sydney never had a car. It was black. Uh, that's right, yes. So, once you've finished feeding the cat for the seventh time today, or stuffing fifties under your mattress, why not settle down in the comfiest armchair of your assisted living home and let Big Band help you forget that you haven't seen your son in three years? And don't be concerned if you suffer from an excitable bladder. Simply press the Spend a Penny button on your controller, and your band will perform a freeform jazz exploration until you return allowing you to have a proper sit-down visit and try and shift some of that Manchester tar. And remember, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing and large print instructions. That's Big Band, only on Nintendo Wii. Nintendo, helping the elderly to Wii for themselves. Also coming soon, Super Mario Motability Kart DS Lite. And Call of Duty Salvation Army. The road to Croydon. Hey, this is Harrison Ford. When I'm not on a canal boat in the UK with my sexy other half, Ali McBeal, I'm listening to Here Goes Nothing on the Simply Sin. Shit, where'd she go? Oh, it's okay. She just turned sideways. <laughs> I thought she'd fallen through a crack in the deck. Again. I'd quickly like to mention another podcast on Simply Syndicated called For Those About to Rock. Now, if you don't like hard rock music and heavy metal music, this might not be the show for you. But if you are at all tolerant, if you can handle that particular kind of music and a discussion show about it, For Those About to Rock has a fun format in that they will um, bring one particular album, or sometimes an, an artist retrospective. But I'm going to go with the album example. One particular album to the show, introduce it, talk about their experience of it, and then share clips from the various songs and describe the songs and discuss the songs as they move their way through the album. That's going to be the perfect segue for me into our different drummer, modern poet, Jim Carroll. <laughs> I'd like to do the biographical thing right away just to get it out of the way because I want to spend a lot of time today talking about Jim Carroll and a particular audio CD of spoken word he released called Praying Mantis. Jim Carroll was born in, the, uh, in New York City, lived on the Lower East Side, went to Roman Catholic school, was an all-star basketball player, but also showed some early proficiency in writing, actually having one of his uh, books published while he was still in high school. But uh, many people may only know Jim Carroll from one of two sources. He either could be the character, almost a fictional character, if you didn't know better, from the movie The Basketball Diaries. I have not seen the movie. I'm told that I would be okay to watch it, that it's not a big deal, that I shouldn't be avoiding it in any way. But to me, The Basketball Diaries will always be a book. And um, more than anything else, this has been kind of a hurdle for me in terms of trying to get 
past the literary side of this and watch a movie designed to entertain, even a biofilm designed to entertain. The other way you might know Jim Carroll is from the Jim Carroll Band and a fairly famous, you know, kind of proto-punk, post-punk song that he produced called People Who Died. This is a song that was, uh, it'll show up in rock retrospectives. It's a well, it's the kind of song where you hear it, you'll say, oh yeah, I know that one. And Jim Carroll was the lead singer and the principal writer of that particular band, of course, the Jim Carroll Band. You'd expect that. But I want to deal with Jim Carroll primarily from a literary perspective. He is the author of uh, several books. Ironically, for an episode about modern poetry, I'm not going to refer to any of the handful or the six poetry books that he has out there. I will instead talk a little bit about two of his what are described as his prose books. And I want to spend some time in his spoken word album, Praying Mantis. Jim Carroll died in uh, September 11th, 2009. So a couple years back on the anniversary of 9-11, ironically, for a New Yorker, died of a heart attack in his Manhattan home. I remember putting a post online, kind of letting friends know that uh, Jim Carroll had just died and that I was saddened by that because I didn't really foresee it, of course. And for the same reason, a little bit surprised. One of the greatest responses I think I've ever gotten to a post, one that at a time of what otherwise might have been a time of sadness still made me smile, came from Jacob the host of the Nerd Hurdles podcast, who simply wrote back, I'm surprised to hear he was still alive. I suppose that, you know, when you think about the life of Jim Carroll, it isn't that much of a shock that somebody might have suggested that him living to 60 was a miracle. Um, And I, I would go along with that. For a good biographical sort of take or a good look into the life of Jim Carroll, I, I do like the Basketball Diaries. And my first encounter with that work was in spoken word form. Now, part of the reason I want to play some clips of Jim Carroll and kind of walk through Praying Mantis as if it were an album on For Those About to Rock or For Those About to Performance Art is that you don't have to be a brilliant reader. You don't have to be a great oratory speaker to be an impactful and powerful poetry reader. The author reading his own work, even in a halting, stammering sort of style, which is how I would describe Jim Carroll, can be you know, incredibly impactful because he's reading the words as they appeared to him in his head. The words were written in the style of his voice, in other words. And it was in that voice, Jim Carroll's own voice, that I first heard passages of the Basketball Diaries. And what jumped out at me was the way he chose to put the passages together, because he's excerpting a fairly long book, and pulling passages from one section and another for a performance live in front of an audience to raise money for Dial-A-Poem, I believe was the venue. And what he did was he first told an earlier story of encountering a basketball coach who in the process of uh, taking uh, height and weight and measurements and statistics and, and deciding, you know, which players are going to be starters and reserves on his team and how he wanted, how he was going to fill out his roster, so to speak, um, took inappropriate advantage of the opportunity and groped him, you know, basically made a, a sexual pass at him while in the process of measuring his height. And um, Jim Carroll uh, punched him, ran from, ran from the scene as he would describe it. And you leave that moment, you jump forward a couple of years into the future when he is now part of the party crowd. He's drinking, he's seeking drugs. He's looking for opportunities to have casual, unprotected sex with people his age or a little older than him. The kind of activity, the kind of behavior that would lead him to drug addiction and to prostitution to pay for his drug addiction later in his life. But at this stage, he's in that pre- He's he's at an earlier point in that time. What struck me was not only was he describing the drug culture that he was in, but at the very end of the passage, when he realizes that the girl who's told him to come, you know, behind the bar in the alley and they'll they'll engage in a specific sex act together, um, isn't going to work because she's so, told that to so many guys that there's now a big crowd, there's a line, and Jim Carroll decides he doesn't necessarily want to be you know, in the back of this particular line (laughs) that he might have taken her up on her if he had been the first guy, but not if he was going to be the last guy. And there was, you know, again, a dozen, more than a dozen. He ends that section by saying that the only thing he could think to do was go out to the basketball courts, even though it was midnight and practice free throws for the game the next day. He begins 
his excerpt from a passage that might make you give up basketball altogether if you encountered a coach who was a pedophile early in your in your basketball playing days and without any fanfare or with skipping past parts of the story comes back and in this particular reading sort of casually mentions that oh yeah despite that experience despite whatever subtext might be behind that experience he was still playing basketball Jim Carroll's most recent work is a posthumous release called The Petting Zoo. I'll get to The Petting Zoo here in just a minute. It's a book I haven't read yet. Released in 2010, so after his death, presumably in a rough state is how I've heard critics review it. But if it has enough of the same uh, references that I'm going to make here, uh, it's probably well worth pursuing. It's, it's on my short list now of books that I don't own that I'd like to, I'd like to pick up a copy of. Because, again, the episodic style of his prose works for me. It's the kind of thing that you can come back and leave, read completely, and then dive into parts of later. It really works. But first, to introduce the style of Jim Carroll from his spoken word album, Praying Mantis, I'd like to begin with the second track called A Day at the Races. The French call them papillon d'amour, that is, the butterflies of love. I call them crabs, the tiny parasites of crotch. <laughs> Jenny Ann noticed them first. Last night she snagged one as it broke loose from the camouflage of her jet black pubic underbrush and slowly tried to patrol the crevice of a scar from a past cesarean birth like a scout soldier traversing a trench. She seized it hostage, placing it in a specimen jar and proceeded through deep infiltration to raid the hirsute main camp. Again, this is neither poetry <laughs> nor truly prose. It's almost an essay writing style of him describing a girlfriend finding pre the sexual parasite crabs on both of them and deciding instead of throwing a fit and making accusations of adultery, capturing enough of them to engage in a, uh, a an actual relay race of seeing whose crabs can run the best, run the straightest, run the fastest, and turning what could have been an extremely uncomfortable situation, sexually and otherwise, into nothing more than a day at the races. Jim Carroll's sense of humor appears later in the album, and what I think is the shortest track on it, called Sampling Nietzsche, quoting the famous passage from that philosopher that whatever doesn't kill me will only make me stronger. Here's a, a little bit of the short work sampling Nietzsche. My version is, what does not kill me only serves to make me sleep until 3.30 the next afternoon. I believe after the audio clip from the Dial-A-Poem concert, where I heard Jim Carroll speak for himself, the next time I saw Jim Carroll was not on this album, Praying Mantis. It was instead on a documentary called Poetry in Motion. And in that documentary, if I'm not mistaken, because even though I... I own a copy on Laserdisc. It's been a while since I put a Laserdisc in the machine, and even longer for this particular Laserdisc. But I believe that includes a segment, not the whole poem, but a segment of Jim Carroll reading his poem, Just Visiting. Just Visiting deals with an armed robbery gone wrong, where the person who's come in to rob the bank has suddenly been surrounded by police officers and is in a hostage situation, having taken the teller, to defend himself against the police on the scene and the SWAT team that's coming. And what does he do and what he's convinced will be his last moments on the planet? And how does he interact with the teller? Here's just a piece of that, uh, just visiting. I didn't expect my hostage would go down as a deal. I knew she signed that paper when she took the job. But I just wanted some last contact. I would have rather some sweet, clever music. I slipped the strap to a bra, I reached under, I felt my palm rinse her breast. It could have been a radio. I moved my lips closer so only she could hear me. It should have been a radio. Whispering, whispering, I told her, you, you see, you see, all my life, the women I have been with, and that's more than you could imagine, really. I, I always bypassed their breasts. I went down, you know. I went to the source. I honestly don't think you're going to die, so don't be afraid. Listen to me. I wanted the thunder on my fingers, on my lips. What are a woman's breasts? Just so much adornment. 
They lie like some chalice on an altar waiting for adoration, like the writing on the scroll, the handles on the urn, the gold that lines the vessel. I wanted the mystery inside, the thunder and the darkest light. As I mentioned, this will have explicit language. I'm trying my best not to spoil any of these works. So I'm not picking anything um, from the end of the works per se. Of course, the very short ones, it's difficult to manage that. But one of the things from uh, Jim Carroll that I enjoy the most is the honesty in his storytelling, the way he spins a tale, in other words. One of the things he does in the track called Tiny Tortures is he deals with the... uh, one of the moments, perhaps the one big moment, where he was asked to appear as a performance artist. So he's going to um, show up in an event where a lot of other performance artists have been called together, including some amateurs, and in his case, of course, uh, a poet more than than anything else. And everyone was given the task of doing a three-minute piece. Now, from performance art, for those of you who aren't familiar with the distinction, uh, it can be musical, It can be mime. It can be silent. Performance art literally can be anything. On one level, I suppose it could be poetry. But Carol made a decision that what he wanted to do was going to be extremely visual. And he tells the story over the course of a nice long track, eight, nine, ten minutes long. It always amuses me because this is another one of those moments in my life where I was listening to something in my home, not thinking that my parents who were visiting were listening. And, um, you know, that they were listening in with me. They'd come into the room where I was listening with perhaps both headphones and speakers playing at the same time. And you kind of got an eye-opening response to, well, that was pretty interesting. But uh, in this uh, little snip I'm going to play, he describes one of the other performance artists and then walks through his own sense of getting himself prepared to get out of his comfort zone. Uh, it wasn't like he was going to be reading his own poetry, which he probably could do without necessarily a ton of preparation. But I get the impression that he probably, as an artist, would still be dealing with the same sort of anxiety. And I've never really heard it described any better than right here. And of course, again, not spoiling, this clip of Tiny Tortures I'm going to play doesn't really deal directly with his performance at all. I deal with the performer, a few people before him, and then his preparation. Here's Tiny Tortures. Then a woman painter did a three-minute striptease. The stragglers out on the sidewalk scurried back in for that one. When she shimmied off her dress, the only thing she wore beneath it was a huge alarm clock on a garter belt. It sounded off right at the end of three minutes. I liked that one. It had precision. I kept checking out my roach to see if he or she, though I believe it was a bull roach, was doing all right. (laughs) It seemed to be holding up. The organizer came over and told me I was on after the next person. I wandered over to a corner to gather myself together. I was suddenly not only nervous, but totally depressed. I mean, to me, the piece was already done at the moment the concept first came, actually crawled to me in the bathroom at headquarters. I didn't see the point in doing it now in front of all these people. I was satisfied with the way it went down in my head. All the rest was just ego. All the rest was just, as the man said, the madness of art. But I realized I was just playing more head games, justifying an escape because of my stage fright. My theory was no more than an inverted elitism. If I'm not going to shut up, I got to put up. And it was about that time. I saw the cover and a uh, kind of a blurb for the Jim Carroll book, The Petting Zoo, on a website, sort of a tribute website called catholicboy.com. Obviously, that fits right in with Jim Carroll's background and his past. And uh, essentially, The Petting Zoo talks about... um, It was 1988-1989 when fans attending spoken word performances first heard Jim Carroll talk about a troubled young painter named Billy and a chatty raven. Over the years, monologues developed into short prose pieces, and gradually Jim started referring to these pieces as the petting zoo. After more than 20 years, and posthumously in this case, the petting zoo has been released. Here's how Jim describes some of those snippets, one of those stories from the album Praying Mantis in a track called The Loss of American Innocence. 
The protagonist in the novel is some very famous and young painter who freaks, he goes to the Velazquez retrospective at the Metropolitan and totally freaks out seeing this like spiritual quality and even the spiritual arrogance in those works. He just looks around at his own paintings and other people's paintings, his peers, and he says, it's just not there now and I have to find it. So it's kind of some kind of grail scene after that, you know. He runs into a light, an enlightened raven at the petting zoo and it turns out to be the raven on Noah's Ark and stuff who was sent out first before the pigeon. But he never came back in the Bible. It's not that he died, it, he just... According to him, he just, you know, he kept on going. He said it was a great celebration. The flooded and he found land. He wanted to get some great, you know, like um, orchid to bring back. An olive branch, that's the type of thing some fucking pigeon would bring back. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a character in the book. But um, he starts to get hit by this bird. (laughs) If I admitted a soft spot for modern adult poetry and i don't consider this to be a work of poetry but just bear with me of all the tracks on praying mantis this one's probably my favorite i don't know that i can come back to it and experience it for the first time ever again so it doesn't have that freshness on repeat listens like some of the others do like tiny tortures for example but for me the first experience of this track called the loss of american innocence is one of the reasons I'm excited about seeing what he ultimately did with it fictionally in his book, The Petting Zoo. I want to finish this wander through selected tracks from Jim Carroll's Praying Mantis with one that I'm going to you know, kind of use a fairly large amount from. It's, it's a short track, and I'm going to play you know, more than just a minute of it. But I think it's important to do so, and I think this is one of those cases where I think Jim Carroll would have wanted this poem to be released and communicated as far and as wide as possible. And on a program that routinely deals with abuses of power in politics, and where I've, I've referred before in a previous inappropriate conversation about the National Endowment for the Arts and its um, hot and cold, fair and unfair treatment of, of artists over the years, I think the episode that I'd refer to, uh, stopping to look it up, is Inappropriate Conversations number 22 art and the strange bedfellows, Jim Carroll and I agree in our perception of the way the National Endowment for the Arts became very politicized and the politicians who drove that change. Here are some of his ideas in a work that he entitled simply to the National Endowment of the Arts. It's a fact that before his death, Robert Maplethorpe placed 36 custom cameras with automatic timers set to last up to nine years discreetly in various bedrooms of your board members, of your congressmen, of your senators, of your cabinet, of your fantasies, your well-kept hidden lust and impotence, your dazzling ubers and inertia. So some night there'll be a flash, you'll barely notice. You'll think it's a distant lightning, perhaps, and I suppose, in a way, it is. It's heat lightning from his grave. It's a freeze frame of your virulent hypocrisy, which exposed loses all immunity in its systems, its censoring bureaucracy. Carol is speaking there from the heart. Uh, He probably isn't even communicating the anger to the degree that he feels it. Um, In 1978, after he moved to California to, you know, kind of move past his addiction, and around the time that he was deciding what to do musically, he was getting encouragement from Patti Smith, whom he had shared an apartment with in New York City with the uh, photographer and artist Robert Maplethorpe, to go ahead and move in that musical direction and to start a new wave or punk rock band. Patti Smith herself had done this very successfully and was really a groundbreaking example of it in the 1970s. So when when Jim Carroll refers to Robert Maplethorpe and the way Maplethorpe was treated by politicians and the public at large in the city of Cincinnati and the National Endowment for the Arts, 
he's not appropriating in any way. He's not taking advantage of a, of a moment of controversy or an issue of public concern. He's talking about a friend of his, and he's talking about something that uh, he takes seriously. And I think from that point of anger, some genuinely good art appears. The uh, tracks just visiting and to the National Endowment of the Arts are two of the ones on this work that I think clearly are poetry. But Praying Mantis is worth seeking out, if only to sample a performance artist who isn't really professionally a performance artist. And what I thought might have been among the height of his powers, and a CD that I'm glad to hear, is recently come back into print. Truly, I think I have several friends who share with me the sense that Poetry is not taught that well from an education perspective. And that alone, among other factors, has contributed to the, to the fact that it's not, it's not part of our popular artistic consciousness. We're probably more likely to go to an art gallery and look at you know, a traveling exhibit of Renoir or Monet than we are to go to a, po- a poetry reading today. And there's a reason why in bookstores it's very hard to find books like the one I refer to by T.R. Hummer called Lower Class Heresy because the poetry section is slim. And if we get to the point of being past the era of the mega bookstore, the poetry sections may disappear completely and become special order only. That would be profoundly sad in my opinion. I remember being not even 20 years old standing in the audience of people from a variety of genders and a variety of ages, a variety of educational majors and disciplines and interests, hearing a poet who is a professor at that university sharing something that was new, that was different, that he'd just written, and feeling a sense of immediacy about it, being able to put myself in that very room where maybe it's adjoining a stage or as part of the secondary altar of a fellowship hall somewhere where one of the side rooms might be a chapel with a door leading outside into a hallway or even a parking lot. And the other room might be the place where you store the old choir robes or the costumes for the annual nativity play and him being in that room with an older girl who wanted to kiss him. It's that sort of in that place and in that time where a poem like Inner Ear was incredibly impactful to me. I actually had an occasion, not long after 9-11, maybe a year or two after um, after the events of 9-11-2001, where I had some inner ear trouble. And when you first encounter that, you don't really know what to do. Now, it never escalated to the point of being what you might call full-grown vertigo. It didn't disable me to the point that I couldn't work. But I was a little bit concerned about driving to work. My commute is not short, and you cannot be suffering from that kind of disorientation and dizziness driving down an interstate. So unlike my normal routine of ignoring health problems and not being overly aggressive about spending time with doctors, I did you know, go to my doctor and allow him to refer me to a specialist and try to get to the bottom of what this was. It was ultimately diagnosed as labyrinthitis, um, which to my understanding, and I'm not a medical person, you know, a virus that impacts your inner ear and has the same disorienting effects that are described in this poem. I was given some, uh, some motion sickness medicine just in case it did get to the point of creating symptoms like nausea. And I was told to be very uh, aware and careful and cautious about when I left for work and when I left work to come home so that I would not be caught in the midst of an episode driving down the road. Or at least I would have specific doctor instructions that it was Perfectly okay to pull over and wait 10, 20, 30 minutes if need be for those symptoms to subside because it was genuinely dangerous. I recall at the time joking with the doctor that I wasn't particularly worried that I would take his medicine, but only when needed. Because to my mind, there are a lot of people who spend a lot of money and do great damage to, them, to their health to get those kind of symptoms, that sort of lightheadedness, that high, that not knowing which way is up, not knowing which way is down. To me, even though it was an illness, and even though it was an illness that I wanted to go away, I wanted to be past it, during the time that I had those symptoms, I was going to do my best to enjoy it.
Hi, this is Will Tristrummer for those about to rock, saying that if you like to listen to three guys break it down and talk about the seminal heavy metal albums of our time, go to simplesyndicated.com. You won't find it there, but you know, we try our best. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the podcast website has show notes enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. The podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. You have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles.